Welcome to the Cancer Care Connect workshop. At this time, all participants are in a listen-only mode. During the workshop, you will hear from our panel of expert speakers. We will allow time for questions and comments following the presentation. Instructions will be given at that time. If anyone should require assistance during the workshop, please press star then zero on your touchtone telephone. As a reminder, this workshop is being recorded. I would now like to introduce your moderator for today's workshop, Dr. Carolyn Messner, Director of Education and Training at Cancer Care. Please go ahead. Thank you so much, Candace, and I too would like to welcome everyone to today's Cancer Care Connect Education Workshop for Healthcare Professionals Care Coordination for Older Men Living with Cancer. Now, today's program is a collaborative effort between Cancer Care and many other cancer organizations, and it really is because of that collaboration that we've been able to reach so many of you on the call today. Now, we have on the call today over 323 participants on the call today, and you come from all over the United States. And we also have international participants from Canada, India, Mexico, Romania, United Kingdom, and Venezuela. So you really come from all over the world, and it's really a credit to you that you've chosen to spend the next hour with us. Now, today's program was supported by Estellas US LLC. I really want to thank them for the support of this program today. And... Uh, I, we have wonderful speakers on our program today, and I want to begin by introducing our first speaker. We have an ambitious program today with lots to cover, and, so, and we have wonderful speakers. So our first speaker is Dr. Susan Sloven. Dr. Sloven is attending physician, genital urinary oncology service, Sydney Kimball Center for Prostate and Urologic Diseases, Memorial Sloan Kettering Cancer Center. She's professor of medicine, Department of Medicine, Weill College of Cornell University. And Dr. Sloven is going to address an overview of care coordination for older men living with cancer and managing comorbidities and cancer. So now it's my pleasure to turn this program over to Dr. Sloven, who's really going to set the stage for the program today. Thank you, Dr. Mesner, and good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen, and I uh, hope I can address some of the needs that are in the Prostate Cancer Survivorship uh, Consortium, as it were. I will take issue with the term older, because I don't know that older really plays a role. What we're really talking about is coordination of men in general who are living with cancer. And with nearly 14 million cancer survivors, uh, it's important to have caregivers, advocates, primary and specialty care physicians, uh, a variety of different personnel involved. So what we're talking about essentially is a group of patients who, or people really, who have either survived cancer or have continued to do well on stable therapy for their prostate. And as you know, with many of the new drugs that are out there, we're seeing the improvement of quality of life for many years, and I'm very thrilled to be part of that. There are very common long-term and late effects of prostate cancer and its treatment. If you've had prior surgery, you may have been challenged with issues regarding urinary dysfunction, which includes stress incontinence, urgency, frequency, perhaps some dribbling, uh, a lack of sexual function, uh, some ch physical changes in the private areas, as we like to say. Uh, or, for example, just a change in, in your sexual relationship. Patients have also gone through radiation, and that could be external beam radiation or seed implants. And here, too, we are faced with urinary dysfunction, the possibility of similar urinary uh, side effects as just mentioned. Uh, that includes sexual dysfunction, perhaps some narrowing of the urinary channel, rectal inflammation, pain, changes in bowel habits. 
And of course, if you've been on hormonal therapy either briefly or have been on it for many years, there here too are issues regarding sexual dysfunction, loss of libido, erectile dysfunction, emotional and mood changes, perhaps uh, accelerated osteoporosis, mild anemia. To put it very bluntly, there are side effects. So how do we deal with all these side effects? Well. One would like to think that uh, your doctor is involved in a multidisciplinary group of, of people who can assist you with all of these functions. We're very fortunate at Memorial Sloan Kettering and I guess at many of the other comprehensive cancer centers that there really is a multidisciplinary group of healthcare professionals who can help you deal with the issues that I've just mentioned, from urologists to psychologists to uh, what we call uh, penile physical therapists uh, as well as urinary physical therapists that can help people do specific exercises that will address some of their uh, urinary or sexual needs. It's very important for all doctors to communicate about how they are taking care of the patients. I would refer you to an article uh, of which I had been part known as the American Cancer Society Prostate Cancer Survivorship Care guidelines that was actually sponsored by the American Cancer Society and what I learned through that was that people continue to do well whether they're, they've had prostate cancer and are in a permanent remission or if they're living with their prostate cancer. There are numerous challenges including obesity, changes in endurance, uh, changes in uh, uh, sugars in the body, a variety of different things which mandates that we as medical oncologists or even urologists transmit this information in our own concerns about the patient's quality of life and potential side effects of long-standing therapies that may impact on general medical care. So there have been numerous directives where recommendations have been made as to how your general internist or primary care physician or endocrinologist or psychologist or psychiatrist can be part of your treatment care. All doctors should have a record of everything that's going on with your primary oncologist and if anything, if there's a medication change, if there's a change in the quality of life or a problem that you have, all this information should be disseminated. I guess the major challenge we all have is who is the captain of the ship? And I, and I have this issue sometimes with patients who say, well, who's going to take care of my high blood pressure? Who's going to take care of my diabetes? And I would say that from a normal standpoint, if you are a prostate cancer survivor, uh, you are likely going to be seeing your medical oncologist or radiation doctor or urologist perhaps once a year. If that's indeed the case, then it should be the primary care physician or the internist who really tries to oversee the communications between all the doctors in terms of any changes in your medical or psychological care. On the other hand, if you are still undergoing active treatment under the auspices of a medical oncologist, for example, with long-standing therapy, then it is incumbent on the medical oncologist to try to incorporate all the physicians and keep them involved. Uh, it is certainly one of my great pleasures to pick up a telephone and actually call the cardiologist or call the internist and let them know what I'm thinking and to participate in the patient's care because sometimes certain drugs have interactions. For example, the drug abiraterone uh, sometimes can cause some liver abnormalities 
if uh, some of the cholesterol agents are used. So working with the cardiologist or the primary care physician or even the internist can really be a, a major benefit to the patient. It's very hard to come out with any specific recommendation in terms of what's the best guideline. We do have different levels of evidence that are retrospective, meaning based on prior publications. But we have also a fair amount of data through quality of life surveys and the like that give us very strong recommendations of how we can, we as physicians, can be very supportive to the overall survivor of prostate cancer. So I'm going to send this right back to you, Catherine, uh, Carolyn, because I know we have a very long discussion coming up, but happy to answer any questions later on. Thank you very much. Oh, thank you so much, Dr. Slovin. That was really excellent and really just set a wonderful, actually, context for the program today. And our next speaker is a Dr. Lupe Palos. Dr. Palos is actually her own healthcare team. She is both a nurse, a social worker, and a doctor of public health. And Dr. Palos is going to be addressing the role of the caregiver, coordination of follow appointments and adherence, the pharmacist's role in planning ahead, weekends, travel, and holidays, adherence reminders, telephone, pharmacy, tablet, apps, teaching strategies for effective communication with the healthcare team, and how to navigate the changing healthcare landscape. It's my pleasure now to turn this program over to Dr. Palos. Thank you, uh, Dr. Messner, for that kind introduction. It's a pleasure to be here today and join my colleagues in discussing the experience of caregivers as they care for a loved one diagnosed with cancer. Dr. Slovin gave an excellent overview of care and reminded us of the importance of building strong communication systems with the healthcare team. And now I'd like to address some caregiver issues. Many of us on this call today have cared for someone during an illness or recovery from a surgery. Generally, that type of caregiving experience was short-term. It had a definite beginning and a definite ending. Yet others, the majority of you listening on this call today, are in the midst of a different type of caregiving experience, an experience that began when a loved one was told they had cancer. Some of you may just be beginning this experience with a newly diagnosed cancer of a loved one. A few of you have been in this role for a number of years, as Dr. Slovin said, uh, our survivors are living longer. And some may be a caregiver for a loved one diagnosed with cancer and has another type of chronic disease, such as diabetes, arthritis, and other similar conditions. So who is a caregiver, and what do I mean when I say caregiver? The term can be confusing at times. To some, it may mean the healthcare provider caring for the loved one, the doctor, the nurse, the, the whole team. For others, a caregiver is a caregiver who is a relative or friend who provides a wide range of unpaid care. And these can be children, spouses, uh, parents, siblings, other relatives, parents, or neighbors. This type of caregiving is often referred to as an informal caregiver, but don't let that informal word mislead you. Being a caregiver means that um, you, as the person giving the care, are providing physical care, emotional support, and helping your loved one successfully manage their disease. Now, right now we know that there's about 44 million Americans that provide unpaid care to an adult or child, and about 40% are now male caregivers, and we've had that in our mind that it's mostly women that are caregivers. Now we're seeing men are increasing, and the average age of a caregiver was about 49 years of age. 
So there, there's also, that's interesting information about who our caregiver is, but there's also two demographic cha changes that are occurring in our society and in the world, the aging of our population and the increased number of cancer survivors living 10 to 15 years or longer. Right now we know that nearly one in 10 caregivers are over the age of 75, and 60% of all cancers occur in persons age 65. So having a caregiver and a patient who are both aging can lead to unique concerns. And it's interesting, when we talk, look at information on our older or aging population, what we know is that by 2030, one in five Americans are going to be age 65 and over. And we even have those groups broken into categories. There's the young old, so if you're between the ages of 65 and 74, you're considered a young old. If you're between the ages of 75 and 84, you're considered an older old. And then if you're greater than 85 years of age, then you're the oldest old. So what happens then when we are putting all these numbers together and trying to take care of someone diagnosed with cancer? The experience of caring for someone, especially an older man diagnosed with cancer, is going to draw more interest in the future because they are an increasing number of our population. So what we want to do in the next few moments, I'm going to share again some tips on how to provide caregiving support to someone caring for an older man diagnosed with cancer. I'm also describe some uh, different strategies that can help a patient, their caregiver, and family keep track of important documents, appointments, and medication. So the first thing that is very important and is a key element of coordinated and comprehensive care is to have good communication or information exchange. Interestingly, there's been some evidence suggesting that conversations between providers and caregivers about patient care needs and caregiver self-needs are not occurring the majority of the time. So this is a, a, an information gap or an unmet, uh, unmet need that we need to address. Second, as we heard before, we know that um, we have to have coordinated care, which involves numerous teams and individuals. We have to recognize the importance of co coordinating care among all of our health care providers. Each individual member of the team brings their own clinical expertise, knowledge, and experience. Think of the team as a puzzle. When the puzzle is first spread on the table, it seems to be out of order with no form to it. But as the pieces of the puzzle come together, it becomes clear that there is order and form, and in the end, the puzzle has a message. The pieces form one, and that is what we need to do with our healthcare team, is to form one. So as a social worker and an oncology nurse, I learned also the benefits of scheduling regular family conferences, which included patients, key family members, and the healthcare team members. The benefits include, included giving patients and the rest of the family, as well as the providers, an opportunity to meet each other face-to-face, -to, -face, to talk about specific needs of the information or family, and their preferences for making decisions um, related to medical procedures, and how to communicate about the patient's condition, treatment, or prognosis. And it's also a good time to teach the family how to maintain follow-up uh, communication with the team. Another key point of care coordination is compassionate, patient-centered, and family-focused um, communication. This is one of the most critical yet underutilized methods to understand each other. We have to remember therapeutic relationships are based on mutual trust, and they have to be established between the family, um, the patient, and the healthcare team. And so for healthcare providers listening on this call, please keep in mind that it's extremely challenging for patients and their families to trust and communicate openly if it's the first time all of you have met. 
again, it's very important when we walk into a room that we do something as simple as introducing ourselves and acknowledging each person in that room and letting them introduce themselves to you. It's also important to learn the importance of planning ahead of time for appointments, keeping important papers handy, and making sure medications are taken when scheduled. A key person on that healthcare team is your pharmacist, both from your oncology team and your local neighborhood. So I'm going to share a few tips on how to maintain a medication schedule, especially when someone may be traveling. And travel can be a 40-minute drive to a family member's home for an uh, afternoon visit or a five-hour flight for 10 days out of state. It's good to keep a small carry bag with all your medications either stored in a prescription container or on their um, original bottles. It's good to keep a small index card in a family member's wallet as well as the patient's wallet that's listing all the medications, their dosages, time to be taken, and how to be taken. On the back of the index card, you can write down the names and contact information of the physicians prescribing the medication, the pharmacy where the medications are obtained, the name of the pharmacist, and include any type of emergency information that you have on each provider and pharmacy. It's good to maybe have your physician write a letter stating that he or she has prescribed uh, the medications that you're taking and have a list of the medications and make copies of that letter and you can give that copy of the letter to each of your primary caregivers. When you're flying, keep your medication with you in a small carry-on. Again, you may wish to keep your meds in the original container or in a pill container and that's when the letter from your physician becomes really handy. Keep a schedule. This is critically important. Keep a schedule of when refills are due. This is very important and helps minimize the risk of being in another state or country and running out of medications. It's also helpful to ask your pharmacy about their policies regarding refills if you lose your meds or if you run out of your medications while out of town. Some pharmacies will provide enough refills to last until you get home and then, and, or they may even try to reach out and contact your own physician. So a question that many caregivers ask is, how can I involve other family members, friends, and neighbors to help navigate the caregiving experience? This is particularly challenging because of the chronicity of cancer. We find that caregivers find lots of support during the initial phase when someone is newly diagnosed, and sometimes that lasts until the end of treatment. However, that support often lessens or disappears completely as the disease lingers, and that is when the caregivers have to feel the burden of being a caregiver. So here are some steps that you can take to keep folks involved. Widen your caregiver circle. That is, ask neighbors, people from your place of worship, or even from local community centers for help. It's normal to feel reluctant or maybe even have some embarrassing, embarrassment about asking for help. But stay focused on your goals. And what I have found is people want to help. They simply need to be asked. So if you reach out, I'm almost 99% positive that you'll get some kind of positive response back to the folks. Include your family members that are from extended families, cousins, aunts, and once they're engaged, then discuss what they are willing to do, and also you can outline what you ask them, what you want them to do, and the time commitment needed from them. Don't let a family member say no to you or allow others to call at the last moment to cancel. When someone says that they will do it, it becomes a covenant between the inviter and the invitee. Treat it as such. Let folks know the importance of their role as a member of the circle and how much you're depending on them. So one of the things, too, that's also important is the care of the caregiver themselves. 
So I'd like to outline a few self-care methods to help deal with some of the stress that goes along with being a caregiver. Pay attention to your own physical and mental health. Maintain a healthy lifestyle. Deal with feelings and signs such as feeling blue, having less energy, always being tired, and not sleeping well or experiencing interrupted sleep. Those are signs and symptoms that are important, and that's telling your, yourself that your body is off cue and needs to get some help. Find time to relax, exercise, slow down, or just stop for a moment. We've heard about mindfulness quite a bit. Mindfulness can be just taking a moment to put your hands on your laps and just sit still with nothing around you, no noise, not even the white noise. Just take that moment for yourself. Get organized and keep organized. Learn to say no without feeling guilty. If you were the one that had all the parties and did all the baking, but now you can't do it, that's okay. Just say, I can't do it. Connect with your friends or your faith-based leaders and groups and stay positive. I just want to remind you that caregiver burden or burnout is a growing public health concern. Recently, more attention has focused on the risks to a caregiver's physical and emotional health and the impact that unhealthy caregivers' health can have on the outcomes of the patient they are caring for. Caregiver burden affects the entire family. It's a domino effect. So remember, be kind to your caregiver, and if you are the caregiver, take time for yourself. Thank you, and this concludes my remarks. Oh, thank you so much, Dr. Talos. That was really quite excellent, really uh, covering quite a broad spectrum of issues and, and things people can follow up on. So thank you. Just really excellent. Thank you. Our next speaker is Diana Bearden. Diana Bearden is a supervisor of clinical nutrition at the University of Texas MD Anderson Cancer Center. She is a dietitian by training. And Ms. Bearden is going to address nutrition and hydration recommendations um, for, um, for older men living with cancer. So it's my pleasure now to turn this program over to Ms. Bearden. Thank you, Carolyn. Um, I'm excited today to talk about um, this topic because I think it's something that we don't really focus on. Um, we focus a lot on disease process and those side effects, but um, throughout our life we have different challenges um, and knowing how to meet those needs um, during those times in our lives um, when our, our process changes um, is important. So to start with, um, most treatments for cancer result in side effects, and um, some of those side effects can impact your tolerance to diet. Um, these side effects can be temporary or have um, lasting effects. Treatments can increase um, your need for nutrition and may require diet modifications. So eating well during your treatment can impact your tolerance to treatment and improve your rate of recovery, reduce treatment delays, and assist with reducing fatigue. Now, speaking with your, um, your healthcare team um, about your special needs um, is something I would, I would encourage you to do, but I have some suggestions on um, things to consider as an umbrella. So a couple of, um, just being mindful of a couple of things that we oftentimes don't think about, but as we age and we get older and we're, maybe we're retired and we're not working and keeping the structure that we did at one point, um, really reduces those social cues for mealtimes. And um, if you're at home more and or your sleeping patterns have changed, um, making sure that um, your loved one is getting their meals and is important. Oftentimes I've, talk in, I've talked with older um, patients and they may only go down to two meals a day. Um, they may be grazing more throughout the day. So oftentimes um, our meal structures do change. 
Reduced activity um, can also be something that is experienced. And regular physical activity can actually help with bowel function, appetite, and our mood. Um, not only being up, moving around, doing exercise on a regular basis, there's benefits with that, but just being active socially and, and engaging with others um, can also make a difference in your overall well-being. Changes in our taste. Acuity is something we experience as we get older. As we age, our taste buds change. Um, this, the, the flavors that we tend to hold on to that we can taste well are salt and sweet. Um, and sometimes those are the things we have to restrict or, or reduce um, based on other comorbidities. So being mindful of, of the flavor of food in, um, in the one that you're caring for. Social changes at mealtimes also may be a change. Um, you know, as we age, we um, obviously may have a shift in um, the number of people living in our home. Um, we may be living alone um, or in a community setting. You know, sometimes um, folks will, you know, go to an assisted living center or some other type of um, community um, setting. And um, so meals may be um, it on their own if they want, if they choose, or so just being mindful of that. Um, you may not have ever participated in shopping or meal preparation um, historically, and maybe you don't know how to cook. Um, maybe leaning more towards convenient foods is something that would work better. So being mindful of what's realistic for um, accessing meals and food. Financial changes um, are something else that we always have to think about with nutrition. Oftentimes there might be a limited income, maybe transportation is an issue. Um, so maybe helping access food is, is something to consider. Dentation um, is something else as we age. Um, sometimes our, our texture of food needs to change as well. And Polypharmacy, you know, being on a lot of medications can have their own side effects. When we're evaluating somebody who is older, uh, potentially um, they may be on a lot of medications for different things other than just their cancer treatment. So being mindful of the side effects of those drugs as well. And um, last but not least is decrease in thirst. This kind of goes along with our reduced activity. Uh, oftentimes, um, you know, our, our drive for thirst decreases as we age, and it also has something to do with our activity levels. So um, we're going to talk a little bit about some ways to be mindful of um, knowing when, when you're getting your new, uh, fluid goals in. But to start with, um, our calories are very important, and if we're not doing structured meals or we're having challenges with finding what's going to work for the patient, um, oftentimes doing small frequent grab-and-go snacks is something that, that may work. And anytime the patient's eating, it's always best to give the best um, nutritional value, um, the best bang for their buck with what they're eating. And so combining a carbohydrate, a fat, and a protein with each meal can be very helpful in doing this. Some examples of snacks that may fall into this would be cheese and crackers or yogurt and granola, um, peanut butter and um, bread to a fold-over sandwich. It doesn't have to be a large volume, but it can be an easy thing for um, to grab and go and not a lot of meal preparation. There are also a lot of fortified products on the market. Um, some are pre-done drinks and bars and things like that. So whatever may work best um, for the patient, just being mindful there are a lot of ways to access um, prepared items that still have good nutritional value.
Important things to remember, though, is um, protein. And as we age, um, you know, our appetite may change based on some of the issues that I brought up earlier in, um, in my talk. But um, protein is very important, and you don't have to cook um, a lot in order to get protein. Protein actually comes in a lot of different foods. Sometimes folks feel like that's the main meal um, kind of the center of the meal. And so the protein sources that might be easy to access are things like yogurt, milk, um, cheese, eggs, cottage cheese. Um, there are a lot of good protein products that are pre-done, you know, getting a roast dairy or chicken if cooking isn't your thing. And um, just being connected with some of those easy grab-and-go but yet nutritious um, food products that aren't heavily processed. Um, there are also protein supplements that you can um, consider adding to your food, whey protein or soy protein. Um, sometimes people do well with this. They'd be adding it to their oatmeal in the morning. Um, but there are ways to get additional protein in. And fluid intake. Fluid intake is very important. Um, a lot of times, if we don't feel well, not only do we skip meals, but we don't drink as much. And we might be tired and sleeping more often. Um, but dehydration is very um, powerful. It can enhance your side effects. It can actually make you feel more nauseated, um, have an uncomfortable dry mouth, increase fatigue. Um, possibly dizziness, but fluids are anything at room temperature, water, juice, sports, sports drinks, jello, um, anything um, that's liquid at room temperature, but you can also, um, just for the ease of things, maybe purchase a reusable bottle and fill that up and say, I need to fill this up at least two or three times a day, whatever your needs are, and that might be an easy way to keep track of what you've taken in that day. Um, if you're really struggling and, and, and finding that you're losing weight or having other challenges, just keeping track of a couple of days of what you're eating can be very helpful. And if you're struggling with what choices to make, take that to your healthcare team. Um, they can help you um, come up with a great plan. But um, nevertheless, nutrition is very, very important um, to consider, and a lot of different factors um, influence our nutrition. Uh, this is going to wrap it up for me, and Carolyn, I'm going to hand it back over to you. Oh, thank you so much, Ms. Jordan. That was really excellent, and lots of excellent tips for everybody in terms of nutrition and hydration concerns and tips, so thank you so much. Um, and our next uh, speaker is uh, uh, Deborah Wolf. Uh, Deborah Wolf is an attorney. She's supervising attorney legal health. New York Legal Assistance Group, or NILAG, and um, Ms. Wolf is going to address educating patients and caregivers about working with insurance providers, tips to appeal private insurance, Medicare, Medicaid, federal and state-funded health coverage, and the Affordable Care Act. It's my pleasure now to turn this program over to, uh, to Ms. Wolf. Thank you, Dr. Messner. I'm so pleased to be a part of this teleconference with Cancer Care. I often make presentations to patients and consumers about their insurance rights and responsibilities, and one of the first things I always advise them to do when there's a problem with their insurance is to contact their medical team for guidance. And quite often the problem resolve quickly. So it's especially rewarding to be a part of this conversation with this audience as I know we share the common goals of assisting our patients or clients in the best ways possible. In discussing health coverage as well as appeals, it's important to know that there are different types of insurance plans and these include group policies from employment and union benefits as well as policies now available through the Affordable Care Act marketplace. 
I'll also discuss Medicare and Medicaid. The insurance laws of every state may also require certain minimum benefits, so patients' rights may vary depending on where they live. So this will be a very general advice relating to all, but it's also important to understand the laws of the state you live in. Older adults still in the workforce may still be covered by private insurance through their employer. As a start, the most important advice I always give to clients with private insurance is to make sure they obtain and read a copy of their policy or at the very least a summary description of the policy. This will outline the benefits, any coverage limits, and the appeals process which we will discuss in a bit. The insurance company can also be a good resource to call if there are questions about what is or is not covered. Even with the Affordable Care Act, insurance policies are still allowed to have certain coverage limits. So you do have to understand all the benefits and limitations of your plan. Now, I'm sure everyone has heard of some of the good changes with the Affordable Care Act. These include no pre-existing condition exclusions, no caps on coverage, no cancellation of insurance due to high costs, and a requirement of certain essential health benefits. A health insurance marketplace now operates in every state, and in the marketplace, a person can compare different plan benefits, see if they're entitled to government-paid subsidies to lower the cost, and determine if they may be eligible for free coverage under Medicaid. Um, you can also access this information at the federal site, which is www.healthcare.gov. The marketplace offers four levels of coverage, but none pay 100% of costs, so it's important to review the choices to determine the best plan for the patient. Even with the highest plan, the best plan, a 10% copayment can be costly for a person in treatment for cancer. Most states also have navigators, and these are people who are trained to assist consumers in applying for and reviewing their plan options and determining what might work best for them. But even with these good changes, all policies can still limit certain coverages. This might include the number of physical therapy visits or home nursing visits allowed per year. But any limits or exclusions must be set forth in the policy or the summary description. Plans through the healthcare marketplace are HMOs, and many also limit out-of-state benefits. Some states have implemented laws that require some plans to allow for out-of-state coverage. Others do not. And this has been a patient concern I often see for someone who wants to treat with a certain specialist that may be in another state. So, again, it's very important to work with someone and look through the policies and choose the best policy that has coverage for our patients or our clients. Now, moving to Medicare and Medicaid, these are both government-sponsored health insurance, and both have also been approved with, improved with, affordable, with the Affordable Care Act. Medicare is a federal program with rules that are uniform to all participants in all 50 states. Medicare is available to most people age 65 or older who are citizens or permanent residents, and if under age 65, a person who's been receiving Social Security disability benefits for a period of 24 months. Medicare is not available to others with some very limited exceptions. Medicare coverage consists of a number of parts. 
Part A, which provides free hospital coverage. Part B, medical insurance, which requires a monthly premium. And Part D, the prescription drug insurance plans, which are provided through private insurance companies that have contracts with the government. There's also Part C, which allows private health insurance companies, such as, such as HMOs, to provide Medicare benefits. These Medicare private health plans are sometimes known as Medicare Advantage plans and take the place of Parts B and D. Medicare recipients are entitled to the same essential health benefits. However, Medicare generally does not cover the entire cost of medical treatment, often only up to 80%, but the remaining 20% can be very costly, especially with the cost of cancer treatment or follow-up. There also can be higher pharmacy copayments. Many people purchase additional Medicare GAP policies to supplement Medicare, and I should point out that these policies are exempt from the Affordable Care Act requirements, and some do have pre-existing condition exclusions. So make sure to read these plans and ask questions to understand all the benefits. For people who are lower income, Medicaid can serve as a supplemental policy to Medicare. For men still working who become Medicare eligible, they may have the option of deferring their Part B and Part D coverage without penalty if they or their spouse has a work policy and work for a larger employer. However, once someone retires, even with a work retirement policy, Medicare is primary and enrollment is required. These rules are complicated, so I always advise patients to speak with an expert. One good resource is Medicare.gov, but there's also a terrific nonprofit organization called the Medicare Rights Center who are experts in navigating the complexities of Medicare. They have a very interactive website at MedicareRights.org, which can answer many questions, and they also have a call-in number for people that want to actually talk to a, a person. It's important to note that enrollment in both marketplace plans and Medicare take place during an open enrollment period. And if a patient misses these deadlines, they may have to wait until the following year. There are exceptions, such as when someone is losing other coverage, but again, make sure to have them speak to someone knowledgeable in this area. Moving out of Medicaid, this is a federal-state partnership with shared authority and financing. Certain eligibility rules are established mainly by each state and vary depending on where you live. So again, it's important to know your state Medicaid requirements and regulations. With the Affordable Care Act, in about one-half the states, Medicaid has been expanded to increase coverage to more low-income people who have not always had access to Medicaid. And as I mentioned earlier, one application will determine eligibility for Medicaid or a health plan through the marketplace, as well as any subsidies for the premium. Medicaid is free and it's desirable for many older people with cancer because it offers often needed home nursing or aids for help in the home as well as nursing home coverage. The goal of the Affordable Care Act is to enhance the quality of care for all Americans regardless of whether they have private insurance, Medicare, or Medicaid. Even with these new protections, claims are sometimes denied. The insurance company is required to provide an explanation of benefit called an EOB for each claim reviewed. 
the EOB outlines the amount paid by the insurer, the patient's required contribution, which can be a copay or percentage, and if not paying, the reasons for denial. In counseling your patients, it's so important to stress the necessity of checking mail and reading the EOBs as tedious as it may be with everything else they're contending with. I encourage my clients who are not feeling well to have a caregiver or family member assist them in checking and reading mail. When a claim is denied, the first step should be to call the insurance company right away to discuss. There's many reasons a claim may be denied, and often the insurance company just needs more documentation from the doctor's office to approve. If the matter can't be resolved by speaking with the insurance company, you have the right to file an appeal directly to the insurance company. Once the first appeal is submitted through the provider's office, often the first appeal is submitted through the provider's office. So as I mentioned earlier, I always advise the client to speak to their medical team first. I'm always surprised and impressed by the number of insurance issues that are quickly resolved with intervention from the doctor's office. The written appeal should document the reasons they disagree with the insurance company and always include medical records and a letter from the treating doctor. If the insurance company denies the appeal, a person then has the right to request an external review, which gives you the right to file an appeal to an outside, objective, and independent panel, no matter where you live and what type of health insurance you have. This means that independent medical professionals with no financial stake in the claim make the decision. If the external reviewer overturns your insurer's denial, your insurer must give you the payments or service you requested in your claim. Finally, it's very important to make sure to understand any deadlines to file an appeal as these are very strict. The rules vary, but the deadlines will be set forth both, both in your policy as well as the explanation of benefit. The good news is that around half of all denied claims that are appealed to the top are finally allowed coverage. The percentage for external reviews is even higher. If a patient draws on all their resources available and has adequate medical support for their claim, they stand a good chance of having their claim paid. I finally want to briefly mention that there is a National Cancer Legal Service Network a group of attorneys like myself who offer free legal help to people with cancer. You can check to see what help may be available to patients in your state or in your area, and that website is nclsn.org. stands for National Cancer Legal Service Network. Thanks so much. Oh, thank you so much, Ms. Um, Wolf. That was really um, extraordinary and covering so much um, and so many issues that people often do not totally understand. So thank you for making the complex so understandable. Thank you. Um, and our next speaker is Sarah Kelly. Uh, Sarah, Ms. Kelly is an oncology social worker, and she's Cancer Care's Older Adult Program Coordinator. And Ms. Kelly is going to address psychosocial support to coordinate care, co-pay, federal, state, and community financial resources, and identifying community advocacy, national, and medical resources to improve quality of life. And I do want to say to everyone on the call that you will be receiving, a lot of our speakers are identifying resources to you and um, that you will be getting further information about those resources as well so that um, please stay tuned. You're not going to, I know you're all taking notes copiously. Some of you are seeing announcements and some of you will be getting this um, in follow-up in our evaluation. So, so stay tuned. So now it's my pleasure to turn this program over to Ms. Kelly. 
Thank you, Dr. Messner. Dr. Messner said I'm an oncology social worker here at Cancer Care, and I coordinate our older adult programs. So I work with many older adults who are diagnosed with cancer and their loved ones. And I have to say I'm very glad that we're talking about care coordination today because I think that it is so important and it doesn't often get talked about with people across uh, so many different areas in the field. So this is just wonderful. I'd like to thank everyone on the call. So our current healthcare system is really complex. Um, and of course, those of you who are on the call probably know this because you're in it. You know, when someone's diagnosed and getting care, they're interacting with any number of physicians, nurses, social workers, dietitians, medical assistants, other trained professionals not to mention insurance companies, billing offices, and this may be across multiple settings. So, you know, if you're lucky, it's just sort of the one hospital, but it could be that you're going to one doctor's office here and another one there. So the coordination of care becomes incredibly important, and I think that the role of support in coordinating the care uh, and with caregivers can be a significant help um, and is actually an integral part of the coordinating care team. So Dr. Palos talked about the caregivers and who is a family caregiver. And just to sort of go back um, and look at it and remind you guys, really it's anyone who provides or helps manage care for the person with cancer. And this could be your biological family, chosen family, spouse, partner, friend, neighbor, even coworker, really anyone who is there with you on this. And for the person with cancer, sometimes choosing caregivers or having caregivers is a clear choice. You know, you know, okay, you know, my daughter lives down the street and she's very reliable and she's already said she'll be there. So sometimes it's a clear choice. For others, it may be more challenging. Um, so I do want to talk about that. For individuals who don't have someone in their lives who's able to provide care, please speak up. You know, I cannot stress this enough. And this goes back to what everyone mentioned about communication with the care team. It can be difficult, I think. Sometimes there can be a feeling of shame, but know that there are a lot of legitimate reasons why you may not have that caregiver and that you're not alone in this. I talk to many people who find themselves in a situation where they're thinking, okay, well, I don't know who can be there for me in this. You know, it could be unhealthy family relationships. It also could be that friends and family are also diagnosed or coping with their own health issues as they're aging. And these are just, you know, a couple reasons of why you may not have someone there. So please, please speak up. Let the care team know so that supports can be put in place to address your needs. You can also check in if you don't have that person with community agencies, religious institutions, definitely, as I said, with the care team for information on uh, volunteer care programs and other supports that may be out there. I'm going to talk a little bit now about some of the resources. Again, as Dr. Messner said, um, you will all receive this information, so I am going to give the websites and the numbers um, and jot them down if you can, but you will be getting this information. So there are numerous organizations out there, in addition to your uh, primary care team, that can be incredibly helpful. And I'm just going to go over a few of them here. So for a really good, comprehensive guide on navigating cancer as an older adult, I recommend the American Society of Clinical Oncology, also known as ASCO. Their guide covers everything from treatment concerns to financial concerns to emotional support uh, concerns. You can find the guide on their website, and that's www.cancer.net. Or you can reach them by phone, and that number is 
273-3508, and they can go ahead and mail you the guide. And I find it's just a really great overview. Also, the ASCO website has a lot of great information on a lot of different things, so it's a good resource to have. I also recommend, if you haven't, getting in touch with the American Cancer Society. Many of you probably have. Um, but just to know a little bit about them, they have a National Cancer Information Center that is open 24 hours a day, seven days a week. You can call them and talk to one of their patient navigators to get resources, to get connected to their own services. They have volunteer ride programs, some assistance with lodging, education and support services, and just a lot of information about what's out there. Um, you can call them at one 800 227 2345. You can also find them online, and that's www.cancer.org. I also recommend, as an older adult, um, getting in touch with elder care if you're uh, having difficulty finding services in your area. There may be services for older adults that could be helpful to you as you're going through this. And the elder care number is part of the U.S. Administration on Aging. Um, and it's basically a program that will connect you to services for older adults and also for caregivers. You can reach them at 1-800-677-1116. You can also find them online, and it's just their name. It's www.eldercare.gov. In line with that, I also recommend the National Council on Aging. They have resources on healthy aging, economic security, which of course is always an issue as you're aging, but then if you add in financial toxicity from dealing with um, treatments and uh, all of the care you may need, that part's going to be helpful. And they also just cover other issues that older adults may be facing. They have sections for uh, older adults, caregivers, and also for healthcare professionals. They don't have a phone number, um, but you can find them online. It's www.ncoa.org. They also have a separate website that's sort of under their umbrella called Benefits Checkup, and it's a really easy and quick way to find benefit programs um, that can help you with anything from medications, healthcare, food, and maybe some of the other needs you have. And this is an easy one to remember. It's just www.benefitscheckup.org. So in line with benefits and financial issues, and to piggyback a little bit on the, what uh, Ms. Wolf was talking about, you know, we know that it's a huge concern for patients and caregivers struggling with medical bills, daily living expenses, and really uh, any other areas you may need help in, please speak up. Let the team know. I also have a couple of places, or a few places, I should say, um, that may be able to provide you some care and direction. The first place I recommend uh, with this is the Patient Advocate Foundation. They provide case management, advocacy to help you with some of your financial concerns. They also have a copay department that covers certain diagnoses. You can reach them at 1-800-532-5274. You can also find them online at patientadvocate.org. If you're needing help with a specific medication, two resources you can look into. Um, again, let the medical team know or the care team know that, you know, you're struggling with that. You could also check into an organization called Needy Meds. They will ask you the name of the medication you need help with, and they will give you a listing of uh, different programs that cover it. The number is 
1-800-688-6897, and then you can also find them online, and that's just www.needymeds.org. Similar website is the Partnership for Prescription Assistance. Um, they don't have a number, but again, they uh, really are a single point of access to, uh, I think it's almost 500 public and private patient assistance programs. They have a, uh, a wizard on their website that you can go in and tell them what you're looking for, and it'll take you through and help you narrow down some of the programs. Their website is www.ppax.org. I also want to talk about a resource for caregivers, and Dr. Palos spoke so beautifully and articulately about caregivers and caregiver needs. Um, what does happen, and Dr. Pillow spoke of this, is that, you know, initially there may be a lot of support and that may wane, you know, as care continues. And so one really great resource is called My Cancer Circle. It is a website to help you coordinate um, basically other people in your life who could provide care, helps coordinate them. That could be anything from volunteer activities, meals, transportation to medical appointments, other tasks. You set up a home page or a community page, and then you invite people to come onto that page. So you can send an email out to your contacts, invite them to come onto the page, and they can sign up for tasks that you have up there. There's also a private space in there where community members can really offer words of support and encouragement and talk to other caregivers. So, you know, it's a great resource to have. The website is www.mycancercircle.com. So just know that that is a really great resource um, for caregivers if you're looking for other people to come in and help you with some of that care, which I think is really important. And I very, very briefly, because I want to make sure we have time for questions, just talk about cancer care and how we can help you with this and how we can be a support to you in this. We're a national nonprofit organization that provides free professional support services to anyone affected by cancer. Our programs include individual counseling. We do that face-to-face -face in the New York area, over the phone nationally. We have support groups, which we do face-to-face -face in New York, over the phone nationally, and also online, both nationally and internationally. We have education programs, like today's program. We provide practical help, assistance navigating the healthcare system. We also have some limited financial assistance. All of our services are provided by licensed master's level oncology social workers. We're completely free of charge. Oncology social workers are trained in how a diagnosis of cancer affects a person and his or her family and friends, so the support network. We're also trained to help patients and their supports tackle the problems that accompany the disease, um, such as the financial demands, physical changes, social adjustment, and psychological impact in care. And I really believe that adjusting to and finding ways of coping with the diagnosis in all the areas I just mentioned is an important part of the healing process, and I actually consider it to be a part of treatment. Asking for help isn't easy, and I know we've talked about this a little bit earlier in the call, um, but know that it actually is a sign of strength. Um, you know, you don't have to do this by yourself, and I can't stress that enough. If you join a support group, you're connecting with others, going through a similar situation. Individual counseling gives you a space that's just yours to voice any concerns and navigate any of the issues I mentioned earlier. And these connections can help also lessen the isolation that many people um, who are dealing with the cancer experience may face. Feeling well emotionally, I feel, helps you better deal with the diagnosis. 
and the treatment. At this time, um, we've got a few different groups. If you're in the New York area, we have a patient support group for older adults as well as a general patient support group and caregiver group. In Long Island, we have a general caregiver group. New Jersey, we have a general patient support group a prostate cancer patient and family support group. And then in Connecticut, we have a meditative mandalas group. We also have a number of telephone support groups, online support groups. If you're interested in any of our services, please call our HOPE line at 1-800-813-HOPE, or that's 1-800-813-4673, or visit our website. All of our resources are on the website. We also have a number of publications it may be helpful to you as you're going through this, and that's just www.cancercare.org. We've learned a lot um, from today's program. It's a lot of information to get your arms around. Just know that we're here to help you understand what it means for you and your loved ones. If you have any questions about today's workshop or our services, don't hesitate to contact us. And lastly, please, please remember you're not alone in this. Our services are here to help you. Thanks so much for your attention and the opportunity to talk today. Oh, thank you so much, um, Ms. Kelly. That was excellently superb. And um, I just uh, can't thank you enough. I want to thank all of our speakers. Actually, they've all been extraordinary, I have to say, everyone. And we're going to now have time for questions. Um, and um, so I'm going to ask um, uh, uh, Candace if she would explain to everybody how to cure for questions. And we're going to try to take as many of your questions as possible. And if we don't get your question, we'll give you suggestions on how you can actually um, get your questions answered. So, um, Candice, and if you would bring all of our speakers on board, thanks. Thank you. Ladies and gentlemen, if you would like to ask a question at this time, please press star and then the number one key on your touchtone telephone. If your question has been answered and you wish to remove yourself from the queue, you may press the pound key. Those of you on the web may submit questions by clicking ask a question. Again, to ask a question at this time, please press star followed by the number one key. Mm. We have a question from one of our um, participants online from Bruce. Um, so what is the best way to assist a patient who does not adhere to the um, schedule that has been set for them? So I'm going to ask Ms. Kelly if you could address that question. Um, that is an excellent question. And I think that if that is something that's happening, the care team needs to be involved. And so that's a conversation with the patient, um, with the caregiver if possible, if the patient has given permission for the caregiver to be there, and then also with the prescribing physician. Um, because it is absolutely important and imperative that patients are able to stay with their care. Excellent. And, um, and we have another question from one of our online participants. Um, my dad is elderly and scheduled to start treatment for his cancer. We are concerned about his ability to tolerate treatment side effects given his age. Dr. Slovin, could you address that um, question in a of general course. way? Uh, it's, unfortunately, I don't know the patient's age, but I can tell you that patients as old as 85 or 86 have been able to tolerate treatment without any issues. You know, everybody's afraid of the big C word, which we always thought was cancer, but it's not. It's chemo. And once people have gone through it, they, they sort of look at me and say, well, what was the big deal about? Doses of chemotherapy can be adjusted 
to accommodate people's deficiencies of so somebody who might be frail. <clears throat> we might give a different dose. We may give the dosing weekly as opposed to every three weeks, for example. Other modifications will take into accountability the patient's uh, protein level, their kidney function, their level of hydration. So it is not without some forethought that the physician makes a determination of whether or not somebody needs chemo. So the fact that the doctor is recommending chemotherapy to your father implies to me at least that uh, he's strong enough to go through it. And you'd be amazed because chemotherapy has been shown to improve quality of life, appetite, energy, and the like. Thank you. And another question is one of our online participants from um, um, one of our healthcare professionals. Ellen, many patients I see do not qualify for hospice, but finances are limited. What options for in-home care do you recommend? Um, so um, let's see. Um, Sarah, could you address this um, as well? Yes. So uh, unfortunately, there's not a whole lot out there. Um, you know, for in-home care, again, it would usually be through the insurance. Um, to cover it, I recommend if that is something that's happening, if someone is not able to afford it, to immediately discuss this with their doctors and discuss with the insurance company what the options are for them. And, um, if, I just, if I could insurance? just, yeah. No. Oh, if I, it's Deborah. If I could just add to that, you know, also talk to somebody to assess whether or not you may be eligible for Medicaid. Each state has different rules, but there are ways that people that are over income can become eligible for Medicaid if they're over 65 or disabled, there's special trust that can be set up. And the benefit of Medicaid is that it does provide in most states for 24-hour home care if medically necessary. So also, you know, check to make sure that the patient um, may not have a way to become eligible for Medicaid. One point. Um, so actually, I, I want to thank all of our participants. We actually could go on for quite some time, but I, I realize that we, um, I, really, I really want to thank all of our speakers. I also want to thank all of you who've been on this call today um, and asking um, such great questions as well. Um, and I do want to say that for those of you who didn't get to ask a question, so if you have a medical question regarding um, you know, taking care of someone, I suggest that you contact the National Cancer Institute at 1-800-422-6237. Again, that's 1-800-422-6237. But if you have a question regarding any of the other aspects of the person's care, the emotional or social or practical or financial aspects of their care, I would suggest that you contact Cancer Care at 1-800-813-4673. Again, 1-800-813-4673 or visit our website at www.cancercare.org. Now, a number of you are healthcare professionals on this call today from really very diverse areas of this country and internationally as well. Um, and also, um, we also have uh, people living with cancer on the call today and their caregivers and loved ones. So we want you to know that you can contact Cancer Care at any time um, for assistance with your questions and concerns. Um, and we don't want anyone to leave this call feeling like they're alone. Perhaps you'll think of a problem right after the call ends, or you'll think of an issue or question tomorrow or in the next weeks ahead. You need to have resources to go to. So we are going to send all of you on this call today all the resources that were mentioned by our speakers so that you'll have them at your fingertips. 
Um, and also they'll be sent to all of you when, um, for those of you who registered online, you'll get them with your evaluation. And for those of you who registered um, by mail or phone, we'll be sending you uh, materials in the mail so you'll have all those wonderful resources to have as follow-up um, to today's call because they're really also terrifically helpful to you. And in the interim, don't hesitate to call um, Cancer Care at 1-800-813-4673. I want to thank you all for your participation today, and I want to wish you all a very fine day. Thank you all. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you for your participation. This concludes today's workshop, and you may all disconnect. Have a great day, everyone.